to begin this morning, I want to say, you know, I, I love spending time around kids, specifically my kids, but I enjoy all kids because kids, one, they're really, really honest, and two, they ask a lot of questions. And I like question asking, and I love kids' inquisitive uh, questioning nature because only kids will ask you, what is your second favorite dinosaur? Or if you were stuck on the moon and it was made of cheese, what kind of cheese do you hope it is? These are the kind of questions that I'm here for. My kids love to ask questions. And whenever we're driving somewhere, I think Hayden saves all of his questions up for that particular moment when it's just me and him in the car. And he'll ask me all kinds of questions. Dad, what's the greatest song ever written? Dad, what's the best movie of all time? Dad, why did you decide for me to have two sisters? And I'm like, some things I don't get to decide, bud. So questions are valuable. And maybe as adults, we could do well to ask more questions. And so if you remember last week, we, we talked about faith and doubt. And we saw that really, at least to some extent, faith and doubt, both of those are a part of the Christian's life. Uh, the rational nature that God has given us leaves us with questions and sometimes doubts as well. But doubt, we saw last week, often leads to a stronger and more bulletproof faith. And so it's okay to doubt. It's also all right to wonder aloud and to ask questions. And so today, I thought we would do, this just sort of arises organically, naturally in the text as we kind of come up to it. Uh, I want us to look at specifically two questions and answer those questions this morning, or at least have the text answer those questions for us. Number one is, who is Jesus? And number two is, what is a disciple? So that's going to be our task this morning, answering those questions. And then along the way, there will be some personal um, questions that you yourself can answer as you interact with God's word this morning. So who is Jesus and what is a disciple? So if you've got your Bibles, I'm, you know, we're, we're journeying through Luke from the cradle to the cross, looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, we've actually been in Luke for nine weeks, and I feel like we just started this. It seems that way to me. Uh, but if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 9 this morning, Luke 9, and we're going to be starting in verse 18. And if you're taking notes, point number one, it's a simple two-point message, even though there's a bunch of subpoints. Um, and then point number one is who is Jesus? Luke 9, 18 through 22. Let's read it and then we'll go back and talk about it. <coughs> now it happened that as he was praying along, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, we, we can't ignore that our story begins. Jesus is doing what? He's, he's spending time in prayer. And I've had people say sometimes, well, who's he talking to himself? Well, no, he's talking with the Father. Uh, because as Christians, we believe that God is a trinity, um, that there is one God but in three persons. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are separate persons. And so Jesus is talking to the Heavenly Father here. But what I want us to see in passing is that we continually see Jesus in prayer with the Father. We continually see him make this a priority. How then, if it's important for Jesus, 
can it not be also incredibly important for us as well? Uh, speaking of questions this past week, our, our, we were sitting around the dinner table and uh, doing a little bit of devotion while we had dinner. And, and Hadley said this. She said, you know, sometimes I, I struggle with prayer. She said, sometimes I just don't know what to say to God, Dad. So we, we talked about that a little bit. And, and I want to share with you kind of what we talked about with, with Hadley, that prayer is, is not necessarily meant to be um, stuffy or flowery or some monastic formula where we, we, we approach God. It's simply this. It's simply just talking. Simply just talking to God. And, and me, I, I talk to God all throughout the day. And sometimes my prayers are longer um, when I have some time to focus. When I'm going for a walk or when I'm laying in bed at night, prayers tend to be a little bit longer. Sometimes I fall asleep when I'm praying. And, you know, I've had people tell me, I feel guilty when I fall asleep when I'm praying. I think it's fabulous. What a way to end your day by talking to the Lord, right? And so, but sometimes my prayers are short and sometimes it's God help me in this situation or God meet this need. Sometimes I pray for y'all and I remember the needs that you have. Sometimes it's God speak to this person. Sometimes it's, it's God help me find a parking spot. And you say, well, that's silly. Well, scripture says you can bring anything to God. You know, my wife and I, uh, we stay connected all throughout the day with text. And, and sometimes an occasional phone call, but we, we text each other throughout the day. Now, why do we do that? Because I'm interested in what's going on in her life that day, and she's interested in what's going on in my life that day, and we want to stay, we want to stay connected through the day. And, and essentially, prayer is a, is a large part of that, is it not? Where we stay connected to our Lord and Savior all day long. It doesn't have to be some formula or some big deal. It's just us talking to God. And so Jesus is, is praying along, which we see him do repeatedly throughout the Gospels, and his disciples are near, and he asked them some questions about his identity. Who is he? And this would further test their understanding of who Jesus actually is. And so again, if you're taking notes, I want to pose this question. Who do people say Jesus is? Jesus asked this question, again, verse 18. He says, it says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets of old that has risen. So Jesus is asking, who do the masses say that I am? And some thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Specifically, King Herod thought this. And this made him very uncomfortable because he was the one that ended John the Baptist's life. And so he was a little weary of who Jesus might be. But many thought that Jesus was uh, sort of the re-embodiment of one of the Old Testament prophets. Now, if you ask the question today, who is Jesus? you'll get a bevy of responses somewhat in the same way that when Jesus asked, the disciples gave him various responses of what, of what people say. And so I thought we would look at some of the responses you might get if you ask just in general, who is Jesus? Now, some will say that Jesus is a myth. But let me say this, very few people will say this. Um, I, I've heard it come up, well, Jesus is a myth. He never actually existed. Now, if you say that in any sort of academic circle, you will get laughed off a university campus. Uh, the, the Jesus mythers are the crackpots in the far reaches of the internet. And so no historical scholar 
I shouldn't say no, very few historical scholars would ever go down this route that Jesus was not a historical figure because he absolutely was. And we have unbelievable historical evidence that Jesus was a historical figure. Um, some would say a, a certain, actually I, say, I was going to say a small population, but actually this is a very large population. Um, if you speak with a Muslim, they're going to tell you that Jesus was a prophet, that he wasn't God, but they're going to say, you revere Jesus, we do too. Now, he didn't die on the cross and he didn't raise from the grave, but they would revere him as a prophet. Now, we won't get into Islam, but scripture obviously directly contradicts um, what Islam says, leading you to the understanding that both Islam and Christianity can't, can't be right, which leads us to number three, same thought here. One of, uh, some people would say that Jesus is one of many ways that God has revealed himself to us. In other words, God has shown us who he is through Jesus. He's shown us who he is through Allah. He's shown us who he is through Buddha or Krishna or Brahma. That kind of rhymed, didn't it? I didn't plan that, but you're welcome. Um, but this is, the, this is an idea of pluralism, that, you know, there's all these different ways that God has revealed himself, and you can just pick the one that best fits with who you are and uh, what your preferences are. And that will be your path and your connection with God. However, there's a problem there, isn't there? There's, there's, there's a, a problem called John 14, 6, where Jesus says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus didn't say I am, he didn't say I am a way. He didn't say I'm a path. He, he didn't say I am one of many doors that you can walk through. No, he made this exclusive claim that I am the way to the Father. And so either Jesus is the way or he is a liar. Now, thought number four, how do my people respond when you say, who is, who is Jesus? Some will say, well, he was a good man, great teacher, but he wasn't God. He was just a good man. He's a high ideal. He's a principle we can follow. Let me appeal to C.S. Lewis here from Mere Christianity. If you've never read Mere Christianity, it should be, should be, in your repertoire. It's probably top 10, one of the top 10 books I've, I've read, um, just because Lewis had a way of, of thinking and putting things. But let me read to you what he says about Jesus being a great man or a good teacher. A little bit of a lengthy quote, but follow with me. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. A moral and good teacher doesn't claim to be God. He doesn't say the things that Jesus says. And so C.S. Lewis says he was either a liar, lunatic, or God. I'll add another option in there, and we'll, we'll cover these three. 
Um, some would say that he's also, it also could be that Jesus was just a legend. That, you know, he was popular and over time his fame sort of swole to legendary proportions. Let's talk about each one of those. Liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. Um, some would say that, that Jesus was a liar. That, you know, he claimed to be Messiah knowing that he willfully was misleading people. Now, I want to remind us that Jesus claimed to speak the truth. And he had no really motive for fooling people because here's what we know about Jesus. He, he would make the claim uh, elsewhere that foxes have burrows, uh, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus largely lived in poverty. He didn't have a lot. He didn't acquire a lot. Um, there seems to be no motivation for Jesus to make the claims that he made, and he would die for that claim, and, and, and later he would substantiate that claim, I believe, from what we see in Scripture and the evidence that we have that he would rise from the dead to validate his claim that he was God. Some would say, well, he was just a, a crazy person. He was just a lunatic claiming to be God. Well, if Jesus claimed to be God and he wasn't God, then yeah, that's, maybe that's how we account for it. Um, however, it doesn't seem to be the case. You know, I've met people working in psych hospitals and different scenarios that, that made the claim to be God. And they are not the person that you would follow with your life. As, we, as we've seen the apostles do, Jesus had enduring relationships. Yet people followed him and they, they saw his miracles and his teaching impacted. His teaching has impacted more people throughout history than anybody else. Seems far from crazy. What about legend? Well, maybe Jesus never truly said those things, and over years this legend developed that he was God. Well, when you look at that, the problem is there's not enough time for that to happen. You know, legends take many years to develop, for one. But beyond that, the apostles were eyewitnesses. They lived during Jesus' lifetime. They could have squashed these unfactual accounts, but instead they write that he's God and they would be willing to die for that belief. Now, one more, and there's, I'm sure if you ask people who Jesus is, you'd get even more responses than I'm giving you today. But when I was in high school, I used to buy, like to buy shoes at this place in the mall, and they would sell t-shirts, and they had one t-shirt, and I remember it, I never bought it, um, because I'm a good Christian. Uh, it had a picture of Jesus, and he had thumbs up, and it said, Jesus is my homeboy. And many people approach Jesus this way. That Jesus is just their buddy and their pal and their chum. Now, granted, Scripture says that, that Christ is our friend. However, it also says that he's our king and that he's our Lord, that he's to be revered and reverenced. But many people approach Jesus like a buddy. So when I need him, I can just call him up. And when I don't, well, we're good. He makes me feel good. He's a friend when I'm in need. That's not who Jesus is. So who is he? Well, let's let the disciples answer this question. Taking notes, who do the disciples say Jesus is? Look at verse 20. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, God love him. He, he is brash sometimes. Sometimes he's impulsive. Sometimes he's kind of a bit of a fat mouth. 
but he's also the spokesman for the, for the 12. And when he gets it, he gets it. Look at his response. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, the Christ of God. Now notice he doesn't just say the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. He makes sure to add, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ of God. Now, the apostles affirm Jesus' deity, even with all the other alternative views of their day in full focus. Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the Savior, the Messiah sent from God. You're not a prophet, you are God's chosen. They knew who Jesus was, they saw the evidence. So they say, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus immediately says, shh, don't tell anybody. Now that's a little perplexing, isn't it? Look, look at the text. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Now wait a minute, Jesus. Don't we want people to know that you are the Messiah? So why does Jesus say this? Because remember, the Jews were expecting Messiah, but what were they expecting? They weren't expecting a suffering servant. They were expecting a political figure who was going to raise up, rally the troops, overthrow Rome. And so what Jesus didn't want getting out was that he was the Messiah in order that people would rally around him and try to elevate him and escalate him into a political role. Jesus is on mission. And God's plan for Messiah was that he would be brutally murdered, crucified for our sins. Jesus answers this question. Look at verse 22. 21 says, he strictly charged them and commanded them, tell no one that I'm the Messiah. 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. God's plan was that Christ, the Messiah, Savior would die for our sins that we might be forgiven. And so Jesus was on mission. He came willingly to die on a cross for our sins in our place. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants a relationship with us. And that kind of circles back around to prayer because prayer is relational. It's simply us communicating and talking to God that we might be close together. God wants a personal relationship with you. That is, you do life together. And Jesus, he says, I would suffer many things, betrayal, mockery, torture, a crown of thorns pressed down into his skull, a brutal beating, death on the cross. So let me ask you this morning. We said we're doing questions and answers. Here's a question for you to answer. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Is he a buddy? Or is he your king? Is, is he someone you only turn to when life gets difficult? Or is he at the center of your life? Have you accepted him as Lord? And if you have, are you following him? And are you being a faithful disciple? Which leads to our second question of what is a disciple? Well, Jesus really paints this picture for us of what a disciple is, what a Christ follower is meant to look like. Look at verse 23 as we ask, what is a disciple? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
daily and follow me. Now this passage hits right between the eyes when you really think about it. It is a, a very hard text and it is a very penetrating passage. Now here's the hard truth. Becoming a Christian is free. Being a Christian is costly. Becoming a Christian is free. It is all the work of God. But being a Christian is costly. And this pushes back or strikes back at the idea of easy believism or, or cheap grace that has invaded modern Christianity. The idea that you can say a little prayer and that you can live your life largely in the same fashion as you always have. That is not what transforming, saving grace looks like. When we come to Christ and we receive his grace, it does something in our life. Jesus would say this. I want you to see the picture that Jesus paints of, of salvation. Matthew seven thirteen through 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now Christ very much paints this picture that being a follower, a disciple, is frequently difficult and that it will cost us. And let's be honest because I think we often struggle to arrive at a place of self-rejection or self-denial. I think we, we struggle at times to hate our own sin and, to, and for Christ to be king of our lives instead of us being king of our lives. This is what it means to be a believer or a disciple or a follower. And I'll say this about Christianity as well. The reason so many professing believers' lives look like everyone else's the reason that our marriages struggle or our relationships struggle or our witnesses struggle is because we aren't in a place of self-rejection. Our sin is not offensive to us and Christ is not our top priority. What is Christ this morning, if you were going to answer this question, what is he asking you to let go of, to release in your life that you might be a disciple or a follower? What is keeping you from following Christ intimately? Jesus tells us what a genuine disciple looks like. Now, note the text. He tells us three things. Let's look at each one of these. First of all, let's notice a disciple is someone who denies self. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. How do you feel about that? Because I don't like it. Do you like it? Now, I know all of y'all are spiritual giants, but I don't like to deny self. And my sin nature says, make it easy on you, Josh. Josh, do what makes you happy. Josh, put your needs ahead of other people's needs. Now, I'm convinced that if we took this verse to heart, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, I'm convinced that our marriages would look different. When it comes to your spouse... Do you deny yourself? Do you serve that other person? I'm convinced our churches would look different and more unified because we wouldn't be concerned with what's petty. We would be concerned with what's eternal. I'm convinced that there would be more missions going forth, that missions would be booming because we would understand that there are people that don't know Christ and we would be willing to deny ourselves that other people might know him. I, I, I believe if we took this verse to heart, 
we would see needs met more in others' lives than we do. You see, our lives are not our own. We were bound for death under the weight of the law. Well, what's the law? It's, it's God's perfect standard, right? It's, it's the standard of perfection, and it tells us what it takes to perfectly please the Lord. Now, some people see the law and they think, oh, here's what God says do. If I can just do it, do it, do it well, then I'll work my way up to God. But that's not the reason we have the law, because we can't work our way up to God. The reason we have the law is it's to show us how far we, we fall short of God's perfect standard. The law is there to show us that we could never measure up, and so we were on death row. But Jesus, remember we said he stayed on mission. He came as a suffering servant to die for us, and he calls us to repentance. Now, the New Testament uses three Greek words for repentance. And I think when you look at all three, it gives us really a complete picture of what repentance looks like. The first one is metanoia which is the mental aspect of repentance. And it's seeing ourselves for who we really are. It's mentally understanding that we are gross. Now, modern psychologists would tell me, you are damaging people by telling them they're gross. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. I can look into my own heart and know that there's gross there because I'm a sinner. And it is the same for you. And so this, this mental aspect of repentance, we see ourselves for who we really are, and we have a change in mind about our sin. Another Greek word, metalamaya, emotional aspect of repentance. That's regret and sorrow over our sins, where we actually feel grieved that we've done things that God dislikes. It's a vital part of repentance. We see our sin for what it is. It's an affront to God. And we say, God, sorry. You know, I, 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 I have sinned and for a season I enjoyed it, but now I see what it is and what it's done to me and that you are displeased by it. Another Greek word for repentance is epistropho. It's an act of the will where we change directions, where we turn from self and we turn to God. And so with repentance, the direction of our lives changes. We deny self and we seek what God wants. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, for if, as a Christian, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So we don't belong to we anymore. We belong to God because he paid a hefty price for us. A disciple, therefore, is a self-denier because we don't belong to us anymore. But Jesus says, verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross daily. I don't like that either. Now in our culture, people throw this phrase around all the time, well, it's just my cross to bear. And they mean it's their sort of burden to deal with unpleasant situations or circumstances. Could be their job, could be their mother-in-law, she's just my cross to bear, you know. Could be uh, a bad back, that's just my cross to bear. But we know what Jesus is saying here, and the disciples certainly did. It was a call to pain and suffering and death. The call to take up the cross, far from easy believism, it's putting our money where our mouth is, it's all in, it's betting the form. If we never find Christianity difficult, maybe 
we're following a caricature of Jesus or we're following ourselves instead because there is no crown without a cross. Now, I'm not painting the picture that as a Christian every day is just going to be brutal and hard, but I am saying this, there's going to be seasons where being a Christian is not an easy thing. And sometimes God calls us to do things that aren't easy for us. And sometimes he pushes us in a direction where it would be so much easier just to stay back. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. This is an encouragement as we take up our cross daily, the call to die to self. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Take up your cross and follow. You're going to have hard moments. You're going to have periods of suffering. You will face rejection from people, and people will not like you sometimes. However, Paul says, these are light and momentary afflictions compared to what's coming. Do you believe that? Then take up your cross, Christian. Jesus says, number three, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and then follow me. A disciple is someone who obeys. That's what it means to follow. It means that we live a continued pattern of obedience in relation to Christ. Saving faith results in obedience. Being used by Jesus demands that we be obedient. And how can we ever expect God to use us in big ways if we are disobedient to him in small ways? God's never going to... God's never going to use us in a large way if we can't be faithful in the small things that he's called us to do. And so I want to ask you, are you following? Are you being obedient? Is there anything in your life right now that God says, Christian, you know you shouldn't be doing this, so stop? Your response should be, okay, God, I'm going to stop. On the other hand, if there's something that God says, this is what I want you to do, and you're scared, or you don't like it, or you're hesitant, you are to do what God has said to do. If God says start doing this, are you starting? If you're a Christian and you've yet to be baptized, that's your next step in obedience. That's a next step that we take. Or maybe you are dating the church and it's time to commit. And I hear it all the time, well, I can be a, a follower of Jesus and not be connected to the church. I don't know why I gave them that accent, but... I can be a follower of Jesus and not be connected to the church. Rubbish. Poppycock. Now, that's like saying you and I can be friends and you have a complete disregard for my wife. Buddy, it ain't happening. You can't love Jesus and despise this bride. They're, they're a package deal. Are you being obedient and following the Savior? Now, as we, as we near our time together, it comes to an end. Let me, let me point out the paradox principle. We've talked about this probably a couple of years ago in another gospel. Um, but I want you to see the paradox principle. Look at Luke 9, 24 through 25. We're just walking through what Jesus is saying here. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself or his soul? Now, this is the paradox principle. In living we die and in dying we live. In living we die, and in dying we live. And so we could choose to live this life for ourselves, 
to not bend the knee to Christ, to not come to an awareness of our sin and humble ourselves and say, I'm a sinner in need of Christ. In living that way, we will die and spend, spend eternity separated from God. In living, we die, and dying, we live. However, if we come to the place where we die to ourselves, where we take up our cross, where we repent and trust Christ, in that we find life. And the choice is ours. Now, Jesus says, what does it prosper a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits himself, forfeits his soul? Jesus is saying this. Imagine that in this lifetime you could have everything you want. You know, for, for all intents and purposes, let's suppose you're Elon Musk. He's got a pretty good considerable amount of money. And everything your eyes see or your hands touch, you could afford it and you could have it. And that's what life is to you. And you get to enjoy it, I don't know, 50, 60, maybe 70 years. But then you exit this world and that's it. And then you spend eternity separated from God. Is it worth it? I don't think it is. Especially knowing who Jesus is. In living we die and dying we live. Have you died to self? Then in verse 26, Jesus talks about false discipleship. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What's Jesus talking about? Who's Jesus talking about? We're speaking of those who will not repent and believe. And so the the word here for ashamed means to reject or to despise. And Scripture is emphatic that those who reject Christ, when he returns, he will reject them. And so the question of who is Jesus is a, is a question that everybody has to answer in this lifetime. Whether we will despise and reject or whether we will submit and place our trust in Christ. Now, we're, we've come to the end of our, our time together. And church, I, I, I so love this time that we get together to open God's word. But we know this. Every time we open God's word, it, it invites us into a response, does it not? And so this morning, I, I want to ask you, as we've looked at questions and we've looked at answers, who do you say Jesus is? Is he your king? Do you approach him when you need something, or is he the center of your life? Have you given him your life? Are you a disciple? Are you denying self and taking up your cross and following in obedience? Now, don't misunderstand, you'll never do this perfectly because you still have a sinful nature. However, as a Christian, there should be this, this theme of growth in our life where daily we're learning to deny self. We're learning to take up our cross and we're learning to follow in obedience with whatever he asks us to do, even when it's not convenient, easy, or comfortable. In living we die, in dying we live. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.